0: please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is John Prendergast. John is a spiritual teacher, author, psychotherapist, and retired adjunct professor of psychology. He's written a new book with Sounds True called The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence, and a previous book, In Touch How to Tune In to the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. John has a gift for pointing out subtle experiences. I find when he points them out, I'm suddenly able to discover and name things that were in my experience, but I wasn't fully conscious of them previously. Here, we're addressing one of the most important topics of all, our very own multidimensional heart. See what John points out. Here's my conversation with John Prendergast. John, I feel so happy and lucky to have this chance to talk with you about your new book, The Deep Heart, our portal to presence. The deep heart is something that I care so much about and has really been a discovery process for me and I think probably for many, many Sounds True listeners. So to begin with, what do you mean by the deep heart?
1: Uh, so, um, the, art, the heart is, um, I have discovered in my own experience and my work with people, both as a therapist and as a spiritual teacher. Has just this remarkable sensitivity and depth of both knowing and feeling uh, so it's it's multi-dimensional and um, I'll briefly describe what those levels are and we can mm-hmm. uh, maybe look into them more carefully but because I my original training was as a therapist I would l- work a lot with childhood conditioning and a lot of the wounds of our childhood Um, are stored in the body, in the body-mind, in our thinking, in our feeling, and in our sensing. And one of the main areas that are impacted is uh, the center of the chest, uh, the heart area. And when people feel a lack that they're unlovable or they're unworthy or many variations of lack and flaw, very often their attention would drop deep into the area of the heart. Um, Of course, some people are very numb and and kind of armored in this way, but but when people are really interested in exploring and letting their attention turn inwards, very often it centers in the heart area because this is an area where we we feel ourselves and we point to ourselves unknowingly with our hand. We put our hand on our heart when we're talking about something that, when referring to our deep self or our deep feeling, so my initial forays into the heart were more into psychological conditioning and working with the inner child and and sense of deficiency, of lack, of flaw. And also, and this is where, uh, you know, and there's a lot of healing and integrative work to do there on the level of learning to sense what's there and learning to feel what the feelings are and learning to see what the beliefs are that are part of this complex that is deeply held in the heart. Um, very often what would happen is this would begin to open as people would begin to get in touch with these younger parts and younger dimensions of their self. They would get to an area that was very innocent and very tender um, that the literature would speak of as the magical child. And this is a very interesting area. It's like prior to the conditioning, there's this quality of innocence and openness and awe. So, Really, in the beginning of my work as a therapist, almost 40 years ago, I began to uh, tap into and work to this area, work with it. And the work has only deepened, not only with my clients, but in myself. A, A sensitivity has emerged over many decades of kind of inner exploration where I can track my clients and my students in terms of the depth of their investigation, of their feeling, of their sensing into the heart area. and. What we've discovered and what I've discovered is that kind of in this very tender and innocent place, we get to an area that I call the soul, um, poetically. And this is a, kind of the individual essence or personal essence, um, kind of just a particular flavor that we show up with that's unique in the world. And it's an area of the archetypes also, um, whether we're a healer or a protector or a teacher, or many variations of these. And when we tap into that soulful level, there's such an intimate connection that we feel with life, with ourselves and with others. It's really deeply gratifying to meet one another, uh, to touch this level. And it's felt in a very, very profound level, very, very deep, deep level of the heart. And and I'm describing this almost like it's um almost like it's a tunnel, you know, or a portal. That's that's how I visualize it. Uh, and as it gets clearer, people deepen in their self-intimacy and their capacity for intimacy with life and for others. And then what began to open, I noticed, is there's like a back door to the heart. There's a, it, It's a portal to actually infinite spacious awareness. And people in the process of falling back, learning to fall back, learning to trust in something greater, Uh, that holds all of us and is the source and substance of everything, would feel this kind of opening in the back of the heart, or sometimes back of the head or elsewhere in the body, but it would be a a sense of falling back into and as something that's totally non-localized and completely open. So this is, in my work with people, and I think in the last 10 years in particular, uh, this last aspect, the kind of opening of the back of the heart, has been more um, evident. Uh, both in my own experience and, and my work with my clients. So when I speak of a deep heart, coming back to your original question, there's a psychological depth in terms of um, our early childhood conditioning, getting in touch with parts of ourselves that we've uh, compartmentalized, that we've uh, suppressed and oppressed and split off. And that can be you know, a very revelatory and healing process in itself. So that's one level of psychological depth. Then deeper still is this soulful level of um, unique expression and intimacy that we feel within ourselves and between ourselves and others, still subtly with the self and other, uh, subtly dualistic. And then finally, this final opening that is essentially non-dual, where we feel our our wholeness, uh, despite whatever... Human conditioning we have, our flaws and limitations, an essential sense of wholeness, and our non-separateness with the whole of life. And this is something that that really opened up for me on one of my last retreats with Adya, some 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, and has just continued to kind of open and and deepen. And it's something that I've been able to help facilitate awareness in and, and others. So Deep Heart has all these you know, psychological and soulful and and non-dual dimensions.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this back door to the heart where we can Mm -hmm. fall back into non-local, undivided space. For someone who has not had that experience, can you point that out to them right now and maybe invite that discovery?
1: Well, I could, possibly. Possibly. So, for instance, um, we can do this as a little experiential exercise. Um, The invitation for the listeners would be to bring your attention to the heart area in the center of your chest. And you can put your hand in the center of your chest as a kind of anchor. And imagine that you're breathing directly into and out from the heart. So you take a few slow, deep breaths. And this is a way of bringing attention down, which is usually localized in the forehead, down into the heart area. And we begin to sense into this area in a very innocent way. It's not that we're looking for something in particular, we're more willing simply to sense and feel and explore. And each breath allows our attention to go more deeply. So there's a sense of, of deepening. A little bit more deeply. We may begin to feel like attention is dropping back, <clears throat> falling back. And each breath allows us to fall back a little bit more. And we're shifting from a place of knowing to not knowing. A place of trying to control to an attitude of trust. And if we've ever floated on our back in warm water, sort of that feeling a sense of relaxing, letting our body-mind be held, and attention continuing to drop and open. And we may be able to feel a sense of space behind our backs, behind the back of the heart area. And if you do, I invite you to fall back further, in a way, let yourself be held by this sense of spacious awareness. And notice if there's any boundary to this space. And notice, too, there's a quality of wakefulness, openness, and also a quality of affection or love. And let yourself be held in this field. With the sense of your inherent wholeness prior to good or bad, right or wrong, prior to any conditioning, sense of your natural, inherent wholeness. And knowing yourself not only held in this awareness, held in love, but know yourself as this love. This love that has no conditions, no boundaries, that embraces you and everything else exactly as it is. And knowing this spacious, loving awareness is actually not separate from anything else, yourself included, as the source and substance of everyone and everything. I'm just resting in and as this open, loving awareness that you are.
0: Well, that's a very good experiential introduction to the Mm. deep heart, our portal Mm. to presence. I'm grateful for that, John, because we Mm. can talk about it a lot, but really the important thing is to give people a sense. You know, interestingly, you mentioned that it was 12 years ago when you were on a retreat with Adyashanti that a deeper level of this was revealed, discovered for you and your experience. And, you know, the question I have is how come... It seems like it often, not always, but often takes us being in the presence of someone who is in touch with this D part, for our D part to kind of get the hang of it, using my language.
1: Yeah. Well, this is the phenomenon of resonance. And um, <clears throat> I think it's it really is the most important part of um, um, the role of the teacher, actually, much more than the verbal instructions, um, because a teacher is, an outer teacher is really someone who's discovered this for themselves and has a gift for pointing it out to others and inviting them into it um, so that they, they know their own deep autonomy. And so, you know, this speaks to the role of the teacher, I think. Sometimes this will, you know, arise spontaneously. In, you know, rare cases, there people really awaken deeply to this awareness without a teacher. But in, in many, many cases, a teacher plays a pivotal uh, catalytic role. And I think it is because of this phenomena of resonance. That is to say, we can feel the truth when we are in the presence of it. It's interesting, as I say this, I think of my two main teachers, Jean Klein and Adya, and I find myself close to tears. There is something so profoundly touching to be able to meet someone who has recognized, at least in a deep way, if not fully, the truth of their own awakened heart this heartfelt understanding. And this same awareness is in us implicitly. And when we are in this presence, we feel it. We sense it on some level. And this was my experience when I first met Jean Klein in 1983. I walked into the room. uh, He was in Sausalito. He, He spent several months a year in California. and He was in the Bay Area. And I walked into the room. I couldn't see him. But I felt his presence, and something shifted um, within me. I knew I'd met my teacher. It was just intuitively obvious that this was the right guy for me. And that's a mysterious process as well. But I would just sit in Jean's presence, and after he passed away, I had the same experience with Adya, really the same quality of presence, and I would just fall into it with them. Um, And this became a kind of um, template for my own body-mind to orient to. I had the felt understanding of what this deeper truth is. And and gradually, um, you know, it came more into the foreground of awareness, which is kind of interesting because it was shortly after this retreat with Adya, when I'd gone to, I must have gone to every retreat he offered, and this was between 2001 and 2006, and, you know, I would get a notice in the email that he'd be offering a retreat, and I would just, without thinking, sign up. And then, shortly after this opening happened for me, I got a notice in, you know, an email notice of his next retreat, and I wasn't moved to go. <laughs> and I thought, well, what's going on? But what I realized is that he had actually um, done his job, you know, he had managed to share in some way. Um, this understanding, and that's why I was spending time with him. And now that I that understanding was clear, it was up to me to really sit with it and live with it, and further refine it so that it was a living truth. and And the need to be with the teacher fell away. So, yeah, we're, this phenomenon of resonance is for me very important. And I, you know, we've we've had a few conversations in the past, Tammy, and you know, I have a, this kind of kinesthetic orientation. I I feel things deeply, kind of in the the subtle level of the body, and this has been such an important guide for me in my work with people, and has, from my work from very early on, uh, has helped me attune with where people are and and help them uh, kind of feel what's emergent in terms of a, a deeper sense of authenticity and truth. So. This is a you know this is kind of the main theme of my earlier book in touch, which is the body has a sense of what's authentic and what's true. So the heart area um, is one of those portals, one of those areas that has unusual sensitivity in terms of um, both feeling and and understanding, and what we refer to as heart wisdom. It all we access the same awareness through different doors through the mind. Um, it brings a sense of clarity, spaciousness, freedom. Through the heart, a sense of deep love and gratitude and appreciation. And through the hara, uh, the lower belly, we have a sense of this profound stability um, that helps provide a foundation for for the open heartedness and and clear
0: mindedness as well. I'm rambling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it, John. I like it when you ramble. You're an unrambly person, so when you ramble, (laughs) ramble, it's music to my ears. Now, as we started the attuning to the deep heart little practice that you guided us through, you talked about how our attention is usually localized in the forehead. And what I noticed, and I noticed this throughout the book, The Deep Heart as well, every time you offered a practice and we began by breathing into our heart, I was suddenly like, oh, let's go to a different region than the region I normally am in. So my question is, how is it? Why is it that attention is usually localized in the forehead for most of us?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's um, for a couple of reasons. One is it's developmental. Um, It's just the way human beings are wired that we... Um, rely increasingly on the uh, strategic mind, you know, that develops. Our cognitive capacity develops when we're children, and and um, really comes into the foreground in early adolescence. And, and in a complicated society that requires many decisions and processing of information, it's a particularly valuable tool. So that's the education system and the culture. Uh, my guess is is that in cultures that are not so um, <clears throat> not structured in this way maybe hunt more hunter-gatherer societies they're not attention does not localize so much in the forehead but uh, we have a lot of data to process and decisions to make and and the mind is oriented exactly to that to uh, decode patterns and to envision possibilities it's fascinating actually to watch the mind and to see um, this you know beautiful tool at work you know what it does and the extraordinary benefits that come from that. Of course, our whole scientifically based um, culture is uh, relies on the mind and its ability to try to to know and try to control. And this is another piece you know to try to survive. So our our reliance on the mind and on knowing is very hooked up with survival, of course. And so we're afraid also to let go. Of this wonderful tool, and open to a different way of operating in life, and and so I sometimes, you know, in in more kind of cognitive language, think that we're shifting between operating systems from a mentally oriented to a heart oriented, or heart and hara oriented, whole body oriented way of living. So um, this require this is a developmental step too, because we're letting go. Of who we think we are, and and it's a natural development developmental step to create an image of ourselves and to differentiate and individuate, to feel ourselves as a unique human being. And it's a, it's a very healthy developmental step. But there's another step to go, which is um, not to um, deny that level, but to recognize that there's actually a deeper truth as to who we are, and to begin to question our stories and our images and and our ordinary egoic identity and as that happens um, attention is less fixated in the prefrontal cortex Uh, there's a natural shifting of attention and uh, dropping of attention down uh, into the depths and interior of the body so this is something that's very interesting this is why unlearning is so important Um, We're not so much trying to cultivate something new, um, but we're actually needing to review our lessons and see their limitations, see the limitation of the mind, and see that what we have given um, primary authority to um, is actually not the deepest truth, and not the deepest intelligence, and certainly not the wisest aspect of ourselves. and. So I often, I'm not original in this, but I often say that the mind is a good servant, but a poor master. So it's not about negating uh, the mind, but it's actually about seeing its limits, seeing that there are places that it can't go. And particularly when it comes to our true nature, which is non-objective, the mind really needs to understand that it, it can't understand. It needs to know that it can't know. So this is a very important part um of the teaching and, and it was true in uh Jean Klein's teaching and, and in Adia's as well, is that we get comfortable with not knowing. And I still <laughs> work with getting getting comfortable with not knowing, particularly when I, you know, have some something I think I, you know, some I have to produce or perform in some way. The old network operating system comes and says you need to do a good job. And what I realize is that um, listening to that actually gets in the way of a much more fluid and heartfelt intelligence. So um, it's, a, it's a huge and radical and, and really ongoing shift, I think, uh, for attention to delocalize from the forehead and the brain and to find its home uh, in the heart and, and in the hara as well.
0: Throughout the book, The Deep Heart, you take people through what I would call our heart-centered inquiry practices, where we're inquiring and we're moving directly into our own hearts to do the inquiry. And one of your instructions is when you ask an inquiry question. Don't go back up to your mind to find yeah. the answer to that question. So, how do we do that? Because I think a lot of times when we ask questions, we get answers in our mind, right? How do we stay at the heart so that we connect with the heart's knowing?
1: Well, um, exactly. And you know, this you're alluding to a kind of primary practice that I share in the book, which is heartfelt meditative inquiry, and and in it. Um, when we sit with a question, we may pose a question. It can be more existential, for instance, such as who or what am I really? You know, what is my true nature? Uh, or it could be an inquiry into a core limiting belief that we may have that I'm lacking or flawed or unlovable or um, separate. But the the invitation is for um, attention to drop into the heart area, to pose the question, to let it go, and to not go to the mind for an answer. And as you just suggested, Tammy, when we we pose a question, we usually go to our mind for an answer. So how do we not do that? Well, we notice a shift of attention. So we're, we're beginning, you know, with our attention in our heart. And then when we pose the question, we notice where our attention goes. And, um, if people just are given that instruction don't go to your mind for an answer very often they'll notice an initial impulse of attention going up to the mind to try to think about it and then recognizing that attention drops back into the heart area so that just kind of knowing that there is a sensing the shift of attention between these two areas uh, can help uh, anchor attention more in the heart area Another way is um, and it's just you begin to get the feel for it because the response from the head is very different from the response of heart wisdom in the following. Uh, from, the heart, from the head, rather, we tend to get kind of linear analytic answers. And um, they tend to be unsatisfying and they tend not to be accompanied with a felt shift. Uh, that is to say, there's no opening, there's no aliveness that comes with it, there's no sense of surprise, and often there's a quality of assertion or judgment. So these are all qualities of the mind. Um, the quality of the heart is different. It speaks in a different language, and not just the heart, of course, but the whole body is a conduit for for a deeper wisdom. So uh, there's a bit of education in terms of felt sensing, that there, the body has uh, its own kind of language and process um, and, and wisdom, if we're willing to be open and to listen to it. And it will come, uh, sometimes it comes spontaneously, it comes surprisingly, uh, it may come in images, it may come as sensation, It may subtle sensation, it may come as feeling. For instance, when I sit with a question, and and just let it drop in kind of live with the question and, and quiet for a little while something lights up inside first it's it's vibratory it's kinesthetic um i may notice some sense of aliveness uh, some some sense of luminosity and i and i know there's a response this is like my body's response to the question so i'll i'll track that i'll just pay attention to that and often an image will come, and then later some words will come, and it will it will all have a kind of congruent sense to it. Some people are not as kinesthetically oriented, so they may be more visually oriented, and um, so an image may arise. Uh, some people are auditorily uh, oriented, so it may come as um, a song, you know, or a phrase, or even a sound, or some combination of those. And some kind sometimes the knowing just comes as a direct quiet recognition of, say, the irrelevance of a particular belief that we're carrying. You know, that we're a worthless human being. It's not replaced by a belief, no, I am worthwhile. It's just like the whole question falls away in the simplicity of being who we are. So this kind of, this recognition of a different way of knowing, um, it's quiet, Uh, it doesn't assert, it doesn't insist, it doesn't judge. It's infinitely patient, <laughs> unlike the judging mind. Uh, we begin to get the feel for it. Now, one of the things I've noticed when I work with people when I invite them to do this form of heartfelt meditative inquiry, is that they are quick to dismiss what comes. Um, it's It's maybe too simple, it's too direct. Um, they may say, inquire into you know some core limiting beliefs that they have and they just feel a sense of a simple luminous sense of being just a sense of radiance within themselves and then they'll dismiss it because well that's not, a, that's not an answer <laughs> and just sitting with them, you know, I'll ask them to say well, you know, what comes? and because I, I have a sense of the authentic when I sit with people I can say no, this is, this is coming from a different knowing stay with us a little more let it unfold. And it's very interesting. It's like learning. It's in a way, it's like learning a foreign language, but it's not truly foreign. It's like learning an original language that speaks more in metaphor and, and poetry and in this multimodal way. So not only listen to it, but and this is a, a point that I've really emphasized in my last 10 years of working with people is to really let it in. This is so important. It's like we're tapping into something that is so precious and so profound. It's really important to to let ourselves receive it, and that means like let the body mind kind of um, breathe it in. Let the cells and the energy body receive this, and this is where the real transformation happens. This is where our body mind begins to shift and orient to a deeper truth. And and we begin to make either a sudden or gradual and slow transformation, or often both, you know, occasionally sudden and and often gradual transformation um, and orientation to our true nature. And it's like um, the the metaphor that I use when I sit with people and and kind of guide and support this process, it's like the body-mind is being bathed in the light of awareness, there are all these areas of confusion and and fixation and attachment. And when this old operating system, that is, we could say egocentric primarily and based on a separate self, is exposed to this light of awareness, light of loving awareness that we touched in earlier um, with our little guided meditation. Uh, it's like it's bathed in this luminosity, in this radiance, in and, and its true nature, and it begins to melt. And all the places that have been kind of icy and contracted and confused uh, begin to soften and begin to melt and begin to um, actually recognize their true nature as well, like the true nature of the mind and the true nature of the body as expressions of this field of pure Consciousness of loving awareness.
0: Okay, John, I want to ask you a question that is maybe, I don't know, too physical. But what I'm curious about is when you described the multidimensional nature of our deep hearts, you didn't say anything about our actual physical heart on the left side of our chest. What's the relationship between these different dimensions of the heart to our physical heart?
1: Um. Uh, the honest answer is I don't know. <laughs> um, it's true. I mean, it, for me, this is the center of the heart is really um, distinct from the physical organ, and and that's that's kind of an interesting point because I know there are certain traditions that um, see them as the same. <clears throat> Some, I guess, early Christian teachings in the Philokalia point to that, but. Um, That's not my experience. So I wouldn't be surprised if distress, like emotional heartbreak, um, may affect the physical heart in terms of stressing it and possibly creating, you know, some complications. And it may also be true that having kind of more regular heart rate variability um, may support Uh, more emotional calmness and capacity to deepen. Uh, So there may be some, you know, ways of working with biofeedback, for instance, as an ancillary process. But um, in truth, uh, I don't know.
0: Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you about an aspect of the heart that I think you do know something about that you write about in the deep heart, which is you talk about the right side of our chest, as being the place of a subtle, energetic dimension that you refer to as a sea cave. And here's what you write about it. You say, for years, often in the middle of the night, it felt like this area on the right side of your chest was being drilled through with a diamond lathe or operated upon by an unseen surgeon with a laser. Hmm.
1: Yeah, this is um, this is something I actually uh, in the past haven't talked about very much because it's fairly esoteric and and I gave it only a you know a few paragraphs in the book. But I felt you know in writing about the deep heart that it would be remiss on my part at least not to mention it. So um, this is something that I had read about originally um, when I had many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, been. Uh, exploring the teachings of Ramana Maharshi, and he spoke about a heart on the right side of the chest, kind of two two finger widths or breaths um, to the right of the heart, and spoke of it as kind of the seat of the self. And when I first read about it, I had no experience of it and and uh, no understanding of what he was referring to. But <clears throat> um, about ten years later, and this is this is maybe after maybe five or six years of being with Jean Klein. Um, I began to have a feel for it. And um, it just began to open as an area of sensitivity. And and as I wrote, very often, uh, there was a period, probably a decade, I think, where um, there would be this process. Usually I would be aware of it after two hours of deep sleep, but I would awaken, and it felt like the area was being drilled on. There was a sense, it's like this area was trying to be... Opened up, and um, it was. I don't know, I really know how to talk about it other than what you just read, wrote, what I wrote, and what you read. Uh, the sense of just this kind of drilling through from front to back um, on the right side of the heart. And then at some point, it's like uh, the drilling was done, you know, the, the opening was completed. And with it just um, comes this sense of profound, it's like, um, I don't know, connection with the divine, if you will, to use religious language. Um, This um, connection with profound gratitude uh, for life itself. And for whatever reason, because I, I really put no conscious attention on developing this, this is kind of a resting place for awareness now. Uh, One of the main ones when I'm not, you know, involved in some kind of project, just attention naturally drops down into the heart and then just kind of uh, rests to the right side.
0: And explain this reference of a sea cave.
1: Well, this is more poetic license on my part, (laughs) if you'll allow me. Uh, It's just in the depths of the sea and it's like a, a cave. Ramana spoke of it as a heart cave. And uh, I like that description, and so I combine the the deep sea because I use the metaphor of the egoic awareness being like a wave tip and the wave base being more soul level and the ocean being our non-local awareness, that this is a very subtle level of energetic sensitivity and thus would be more on a kind of soul level, subtle energetic level, thus, and kind of a sea cave.
0: Okay. So spontaneously, after a couple hours of sleep, this right side of the heart energetic area started being drilled open in your case. Now, if someone's listening, they're like, I'm curious about this. I've never had an experience of the right side of my chest having anything to do particularly with my heart. I don't know this energetic center. How could they begin to discover it?
1: Mm. Okay. So... Um, I think the first thing is to, um, for someone who may be interested in this, is to actually look at what your own motive may be. And if the motive is just kind of out of to accumulate experiences or, um, you know, out of just curiosity, um, I don't think that's sufficient. However, if there is a sense of resonance, and this is the principle we get back to again, if there's something that really lights up, in you, as you hear about this, then I think you can begin to um, <clears throat> bring attention there. Um, just in terms of listening, I've never been one to try to make things happen. I've, I've more really been interested in being intimate with experience, staying close to experience, and and allowing um, what's natural to unfold. And so, uh, in accord with that principle, I would suggest just bring your attention if your motive is really to explore some sense of intuitive resonance, as I talk about the heart on the right side, um, then just bring your attention down to the heart area, to the center, and then slightly to the right side. And just let it rest there a little bit and see if there's something that invites attention. So, um, and if there is, if there's really something important there to attend to, uh, it will begin to show itself. And if nothing does, then it's not needed. So it's interesting. It's like, I know, um, you know, my main teachers, uh, Jean and Adya, ne- neither one of them talk about this um, publicly, and yet both of them are familiar when I've asked them uh, in the past about that. They both have a sense of it. And there is an interesting story that I actually originally wrote in the book and that we edited out, where the librarian from Ramana Mar. Ramana Ashram, his name is David Godman, he's written a number of books, went to visit the um, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who some of your listeners will recognize as a famous sage in Bombay, went to see him in the late 70s. Uh, he asked him about his um, kind of relationship with Ramana and, and what Nisargadatta said was his one regret in life was that he never met Ramana. And he was in complete accord with all of Ramana's teachings, except this teaching about the heart on the right. and He had no idea what he was talking about. So uh, if Nisargadatta was not experiencing it and it wasn't important, then um, you know, I don't think it's central. Um, and this is true for Ramana as well. I mean, he talked about, if you look into talks with Ramana Maharshi, it's a good source book about his description of the heart. And he spoke of the heart really as the very center of our being, the very center of consciousness. But that, that that consciousness is non-local. And he said, this is really what's most important. Don't worry about energy centers. Don't worry about the heart on the right. Um, what's most important is to discover who you are, essentially, and to, to live from that. So I would say that to your listeners as well. This is kind of an interesting esoteric um, aside that may or may not arise, but I don't think it's uh, central to really discovering who we really are,
0: it may not be central, but it's interesting to me that it was so spontaneous and has been so important to you
1: It's true it was um well, that's been true of many things you know? and that's I think how um you know this unfolds for each of us there's a there's a unique kind of expression and and who knows why you know who as I said earlier when I was initially reading Ramana, I didn't really have a good feel for his teaching, but just looking into his eyes, just this incredible luminosity and love that I could sense. I knew that this was a very, uh, you know, an extraordinary being. So yeah, there are causes and conditions um, that are unknown as to why understanding unfolds in particular ways, and Mm -hmm. that's certainly true with the heart on the right.
0: So it's interesting, we've been talking about The multidimensionality of the deep heart and the deep heart as a portal. And we talked about the back of the heart and now the right side of the heart. But I think what most people experience, I think, and I'll certainly speak from my experience, is connecting with the woundedness of their hearts, Uh the Uh ways that our hearts have been covered over, the way that Uh we can feel like a hard acorn someplace in the Uh center of our heart. Yeah, Yeah, a hard Uh shell. And you actually write in The Deep Heart that our wounded hearts can also be a portal. So talk about that, John.
1: Yeah, this is, um, as I mentioned in the book, this is really one of the most surprising There have been many surprises in my many years of working with people, but uh, to discover that these apparent wounds are often um, incredible portals to our essence has been really, really interesting. So, for instance, with the heart, if we have experienced neglect or abuse, as many of us have, you know, either discreetly or as part of developmental trauma, it really impacts deeply this um, this area of sensitivity. And if we have if we kind of look inside with our inner our inner vision, very often it can look like a, a bombed out area, like a crater, you know uh, and this is what um, Almas talks about is deficient emptiness. And it's a place we don't want to go because there's so much pain that's stored there. There's a sense of lack. There's a sense of uh, hurt and unworthiness. And it's not something that we want to show to anyone else. And so we, we lock it away and we guard it. Uh, it's kind of a no-go zone. But what's interesting is that when we have the courage um, and, and the vulnerability and the love of truth, uh, we're willing to begin to enter these places because we know that they're important. We know that something uh, we've left something important behind, and this is this is a very fascinating principle that these areas of sensitivity um, that have felt so hurt actually have their essential nature beneath the wound uh, remaining intact. So if we can begin to feel and sense our way into the wound, we can see, we can feel and sense what's beneath them. So for instance, if we feel like our heart is a you know a bombed out crater, you know, a place of emptiness, um, profound emptiness, uh, a bottomless pit of grief, for instance, that's a very common image. If we're willing to actually explore, to let our attention drop in, And and often it's helpful to have a guide with us, to know, you know, to be reassured that this kind of journey, uh, talk about, you know, caving, this is, you know, a deep dive into a kind of, you know, forbidden cave, Um, it opens up. And, um, you know, what it opens up to uh, will look and feel differently for different people, but it will touch, at the very least, we'll discover what we left behind in terms of buried treasure, in terms of essential qualities of being. And it may open up even further in terms of spacious, loving awareness. So this is, this is really a tantric principle, that any experience is a portal into our true nature, and that everything that we've turned away from, really, and spent a lot of energy avoiding, um, can be a portal par excellence as well. And so, for instance, uh, and I can remember as I talk about this, we talked a little bit about this um, when we were talking about In Touch. If you, if you lean in to your fear you know, or your terror or your shame or your rage <clears throat> or your guilt, but you lean in with your awareness and you breathe and you inquire without trying to change it, but just with a willingness to be intimate with it, we're providing an optimal environment for it to begin to to shift and open of its own, not because we're we're um, trying to make something happen, but because we're meeting it with exactly what was absent in the past. So, in other words, you know what we learn to do is we learn to abandon ourselves when it's too painful. We have to, you know, it's part of self-preservation and adaptation. So, if we've been in an environment that's harsh. That's judgmental. That's unloving. That's neglectful or abusive, verbally or physically. We learn to shut down. You know, we protect that native sensitivity, and we get on with our life. And so, at some point, you know, often it's somewhere in our 30s or 40s or later. There's there's a turning back, and there's a um, a a seeing of a sensing and a seeing of what's been left behind in terms of unfinished business and a, a return to these uh, child parts and child experiences and a and a process of embracing them with love and understanding and we go to those places that we abandoned and in so doing we reverse the process of self abandonment and this is this is a very profound process to to first recognize how we have abandoned ourselves. And then to, by bringing loving and and compassionate and uh, clear awareness and attention, affectionate attention in a word, back to these areas that have been abandoned by others and that we've abandoned, we reverse the process and we, we come back to embracing ourselves. And, and this brings a sense of homecoming, and it feels like... This is something I haven't mentioned in our conversation yet, but when attention really drops deeply into the heart, um, and and we feel increasingly peaceful and open, there's a sense of coming home to who we really are. That we are at ease as we are, and so in this way, um, these these wounds um, serve as um, profound portals, and these these uh, orphaned parts of ourselves, these, these um, children dressed in tattered rags, they carry jewels in their pockets unknowingly. They they, they bear essential radiance with them. And it's deeply gratifying, um, deeply gratifying to, to reconnect with these parts that have been frozen and pushed away and judged and to welcome them back in. And and very often the, the center of this welcoming is in the heart area. So this is an important part of, um, I think, all of our work. And a lot of people have done, you know, a lot of spiritual work, but they've neglected this um, deep psychological conditioning and postponed it for many years, hoping that their meditation or their self-inquiry will uh, resolve it. And it doesn't because it requires, it's relational very often. and it's And it's very deeply emotional and it, and it requires a special quality of attention and relationship. However, that said, um, the quality of presence that we can contact through meditation and and being with a teacher and and various spontaneous openings, that's our greatest resource. If we can tap into that sense of spacious, loving awareness, and from that approach our our wounds and so-called wounds and frozen areas. Um, then we really help facilitate the process of integration. And simultaneously, uh, if we can approach those areas and as they, as they heal and as they mature, that frees up energy and space for us to more intimately recognize our true nature. So there's a very subtle interactive process of um, psychological healing and spiritual awakening that uh, support each other
0: no you you mentioned this leaning into these wounded areas is a tantric approach, and mm. it felt to me that throughout the book, the Deep heart, you were including and showing the value both of a tantric approach and a transcendent approach, and mm. saying both are useful they're both good. This is not an either or situation. Is right. that what you're saying?
1: I am yeah this is I mean my my training initially, uh, spiritually, was more towards the transcendent. I mean, you know, I even trained it to be a transcendental meditation teacher. So there's the transcendent, you know, to tap into this formless, pure awareness. And then my psychological training um, helped me really ground in the importance of working with our conditioning. And then uh, gradually I began to... Um, recognize the complementary nature of these and and how we both need i think a transcendent and imminent approach the value of a transcendent approach is we can step back from our experience the presence is always here no matter what we're experiencing everything is happening in awareness Uh, every thought every feeling every sensation um, cannot happen unless there is awareness and so by actually recognizing this background awareness, um, we can gain perspective and clarity and a sense of space and and freedom from whatever our foreground experience is. So that's the beauty, um, is that we're we're accessing our our primary resource um, with a transcendent approach, assuming it's it's truly that and not something dissociative. And you know, on the other side, as we Become more intimate with our feelings and our sensations, and and as our thoughts, um, we begin to discover that they are all expressions of that transcendent awareness. So we're we're into that kind of the deep metaphysics of emptiness and fullness, and their their non-separateness, and and this I think is really um, to discover this and have a sense of the complementary nature of both transcendent and imminent approaches. Um, allows us to live this in our very ordinary lives, rather than in a specialized life that has this um, isolated. You know, a monastic tradition or, or a monastic um, environment. No, we're engaged. We're we have relationships. We have lovers and children and and friends and family to take care of. We have jobs to do and decisions to make, and and we're active um, and. And yet we feel, and, and here I'm speaking from my own experience, an underlying quality of something sacred in the most ordinary um, experiences and events. So it's like there's, there's a, a luminosity, um, a kind of quiet radiance to, um, to life and to our ordinary life. So I think that's why these are, are complementary. Each has their value. And I think each can be a kind of you can get trapped in one or the other. We can get trapped into um, the transcendent because it just feels there's so much freedom there, uh, and we feel ourselves maybe above or apart from our ordinary human experience. It can be a huge sense of relief, but we can hide out there and really um, avoid relationship, and and then be hijacked, you know, by our emotional vulnerability and our inability to be in a mature relationship and you know what commonly known as spiritual bypassing and we can be so immersed in our experience our thoughts feelings and sensations that we don't have a sense of their actual source and so we can have a rich personal life but not that sense of freedom and and a sense of that inner kind of um radiance um and and a sense of being undivided as well
0: Okay, one final area I want to talk to you about, John, has to do with how the deep heart can be as sensitive as it is and connect and respond to what seems like unbearable pain, whether it's the pain of other people or pain in the world, pain we read about in the news. Yeah. and how this can be an obstacle for, for some people to open their hearts uh, in the face mm-hmm. of that kind of pain. It's like, no, I can't take it. I don't know. My deep heart's not deep enough. What do you have mm-hmm. to say about that?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful and important subject because um, the truth is that as our hearts open more, we do feel the suffering of um, not only our own, um, which I think does resolve in time, but of the collective, and not only of humans, you know, but of the biosphere as well, and uh, not only of our current humanity, but of our, you know, our history and prehistory, of trauma as well. So there's an extraordinary amount of suffering, you know, that we are immersed in and in experience, and it can feel overwhelming. Um, and this actually, there's there's two points here. One is. The human heart really doesn't have the capacity to bear that suffering. Um, And this is why the discovery of the great heart or the universal heart uh, is so important because we do have within us, in the depths of our very being, a capacity um, that's not personal. That's really universal uh, to embrace life as it is, including um, the worst and most intense forms of suffering. And this has been a kind of revelation in my own unfolding to discover this. So that's one point, which is the heart is actually infinite in its capacity to, to love and hold um, life as it is, including suffering. And not to mention, you know, tremendous joy and gratitude. The other point is, and we, we haven't talked about this um, so far, or I've only alluded to it briefly, which is the foundational um, nature of the hara, and it provides a kind of stability, um, a sense of safety, no matter what. Like when the, when our deepest sense of ground opens, the groundless ground, we have a we have a sense that we are safe, no matter what is happening. And it seems paradoxical to the mind, but it's a it's very much a felt experience. Um, and for many people that I work with, this has been the missing part in terms of working with the heart, because they have difficulty sustaining an openness of the heart because of this underlying sense of unsafety, of overwhelm, you know, which may be triggering childhood experience, but it may be, you know, more collective as well. So, as important as it is for the heart to awaken, um, it's equally important that the hara come online as a kind of find foundational support for that. So the more that that happens, the more we sustain a sense of balance in our compassion and an ability then to respond in a creative way, uh, in a way that's appropriate for each of us, uh, depending on how we're wired and what our interests are.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that what you're saying is, if someone has the experience, my heart isn't infinite. I can't handle it. I'm overwhelmed. That they could move down into their you're referring to the hara, uh, the belly center. Mm -hmm. And that by discovering what you're calling the groundless ground, that spaciousness, infinite spaciousness in the belly, that will help support their heart in some way.
1: Yes. Yeah, it can. Yeah. If the heart is feeling overwhelmed that way, it's like, I mean, there's a lot. It depends on the person and they may be overwhelmed because they're caught in a story, you know, and that would be important to recognize and see through and release. But also uh, let the attention shift down uh, even more deeply in the body and feel a sense of stability in the lower the lower belly and the pelvis and the legs and the feet and feel your connection with the ground and breathe in and out from there. And that, that will have a, you know, on a relative level, that's a familiar move and of, of attention in terms of stabilizing awareness, connecting with the earth and our sensory experience so we're not emotionally overwhelmed. But there is this deeper dimension of the ground that begins to open, um, and we we recognize that we're not just this body or the body's not what we think it is, and we feel ourselves rooted in, well, rooted really in, in the truth of who we are. And this is stabilizing for the heart area.
0: And on that note, John, can we end our conversation? Can you just guide us into that felt experience of both being connected to the groundless ground, a type of infinitude in the lower center and our heart resting in an open place.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, to the listeners, to all of you, um, take a few deep breaths and feel your attention dropping down, uh, not only from the heart area, into the heart area. But also down into your lower belly. The area a little below the navel. And imagine that you can breathe here. Feel what it's like to have your center low and to be seated more deeply in your inner authority, your inner knowing. To trust your deepest knowing as your ground. And as you breathe and feel the pelvic bowl and your legs, and your feet. Sense into the ground beneath your body. As if you're breathing directly from and into this underground space. So you're, ex- you're inhaling from this space, and you're exhaling into it. And each time you exhale, there's a sense of deepening space and deepening intimacy with this underground space. And feel yourself held not only by gravity, but something much greater than the gravity of the earth. held by the ground of being. So there's a sense of both opening and grounding. It feels very spacious, but also deeply settling and grounding. Like a great tree putting its roots deep down. But in this case, opening to Infinitude. And as you feel increasingly grounded and stable and spacious and open in this underground space, feel your heart. Feel your heart supported by this ground. And recognize that it's safe for you to shine. It's safe for the essential nature of the heart to radiate out. And that the true nature of your heart can never be hurt and does not need to be protected. So sensing that profound sense of safety and ground and the natural radiance, heart radiance that shines. Take as long as you like to enjoy this.
0: Thank you, John Prendergast. You're a beautiful, beautiful teacher. I really love Mm. the way you point things out. It's very helpful and Mm. warm and loving. Thank you so much. Mm.
1: It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Tammy.
0: John Prendergast is the author of two books with Sounds True, a new book called The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence, and a previous book called In Touch, How to Tune into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. Tune into the inner guidance of your body and trust yourself. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world.